A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? In 2015, China set the target of being a tech superpower by 2025. That is an industrial strategy known as Made in China 2025, and it means that China wants to move into high-tech areas like robotics, AI, biotech, and also semiconductors, those computer chips that go into pretty much everything in modern life, from iPhones to unmanned drones in warfare. But China has actually not had much success in meeting its targets for domestic production on this front since 2015. And the world's leading manufacturer of these semiconductors is actually based in Taiwan. And given the current geopolitical climate we're in, it means that there's a massive arms race going on, so that this technological race has become a geopolitical one, an arms race for the 21st century. That's what I'm going to be talking about in this episode today, China's quest for dominance in semiconductors and the geopolitical implications for that. My guest is Nigel Inkster, who is a former MI6 director and now a senior advisor on cybersecurity and China for the think tank IISS, and also author of a book called The Great Decoupling, which is all about America and China's respective quests for technological dominance and the decoupling in global supply chains that might come about it. So, Nigel, welcome to Chinese Whispers. To start with, can you explain what is a semiconductor and what are they used for? Well, semiconductors, you know, to answer the second part of your question first, they're used for pretty much everything these days. Then, you know, there are very few machines, devices that are not critically dependent upon semiconductors, which used to be called transistors. They're, they are essentially, in effect, a kind of microelectronic switch. They enable circuits to open and shut and through that to enable a huge variety of electronic devices to work. Mm. And as I understand it, size matters insofar as the smaller, the better. And the most cutting edge at the moment is about three nanometers. Is that right? Yes. I mean, three nanometers is just starting to be a production feature. In fact, the vast majority of semiconductors that are in common use are nowhere near that small. You know, sort of anything from 64 to 28 nanometers is much more common. And the problems that we've been seeing globally in relation to areas like the motor industry, you know, the shortages there are not of these very high end minute microchips that you know the much larger more more commonly available but having said commonly available the production of these things is in no sense a trivial undertaking mm, i mean it's very expensive as i understand it to do each generation billions of dollars yes well if we're talking about you know three nanometers to set up a fabrication plant a fab as it's termed in the trade uh, we're, we're talking somewhere between 15 and 18 billion dollars and once you've actually made that investment you have to maximize production for as long as possible in order to amortize that investment it's a very complicated process 
you've got to build the fab, you've got to acquire the etching machines, which each of which will cost you between two and three hundred million dollars. And you also need to set up a very complex and sophisticated supply chain in the chemicals and materials that you're going to need to operate the plant. Added to which, you know, if, if anything goes wrong, shutting down the plant and then reopening it is a major undertaking. It's not a trivial matter, just switching, turning off a switch, turning it back on again. Mm. And costs matter. I mean, it's very interesting, for example, that one of the founders of the Taiwanese TSMC Corporation, which is manufacturing now at this three nanometer production node, gave an interview recently where he talked about relative costs and made the point that in the United States, production costs were persistently and stubbornly 25% higher than in Taiwan, which made the prospect of opening TSMC fabs in the USA a not very attractive commercial proposition, but it is being done more actually for political reasons. Yes, well, let's definitely talk about that. Um, you mentioned the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which is the world-leading company mm-hmm. doing these cutting-edge things. Can you give us an idea of the market dominance of them? How good are they? How important are they? Just to dial back briefly, most of the intellectual property and design of these microprocessors is done in the United States. But the United States does not now produce many of these microprocessors. I think only about 12% of global supply is actually manufactured in the United States. And most of that is done by one major corporation, Intel. There are only two other games in town when it comes to the very advanced high-end microprocessors. And that is Samsung in Korea and TSMC in Taiwan. And the TSMC fabs in Taiwan specialize in producing other companies' designs. So you've got major design companies in the United States, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, etc. They design the microprocessors and TSMC produces them. Samsung is a kind of intermediate situation because they manufacture for their own devices, but also they make to other people's designs. Intel only, up until now, has manufactured for Intel's own machinery and equipment. So TSMC is unique in that it only manufactures other people's design. And over the years, TSMC has taken massive gambles in investing in this very complex and expensive process, making it, in effect, the world leader. And I think it's very difficult to say categorically, but it's possible that TSMC may account for 60% of the world's most advanced microprocessors. So it is absolutely market critical. I mean, it's incredible that this chip that is so important to everything in daily life is so Mm -hmm. market dominated by one factory or one company, I should say, in Taiwan, especially when Taiwan is such a precarious place, which I will get on to soon. Well, I think the point there is that out of the three major manufacturers of advanced microchips, two are in geopolitically very unstable locations. That's TSMC and Samsung. Yes, that's true. So how is it that a Taiwanese company has had such market dominance in doing that? then is it 
just because of a globalized world, American companies relying on, you know, there, there is no reason not to import this kind of stuff if you don't have to put in the cost of manufacturing yourself. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, manufacturing in Taiwan is, as we just said, very considerably cheaper than in the United States. You save 25%. Why, why is that? Well, I think it's just a, a function of the fact that the United States is you know, a very high-cost you know, high society. I see. And that impacts on everything. It impacts on you know, the wages you have to pay your workers. It impacts on the, your taxes. Everything that, you know, all the inputs into the process are just that much more expensive in the United States because it is you know, a more developed economy. So, yes, I mean, I think it's been one of those situations where Taiwan has identified this area as a kind of area for developing a national champion. And this has been a mutually beneficial arrangement. Mm. And I think it's important to emphasize that the manufacture of microprocessors is a highly globally integrated system. I mean, you've got, you know, TSMC is manufacturing these things, but it's getting the designs from the United States. It's getting the equipment to etch the circuits from the Netherlands. It's getting chemicals from Japan, from Germany, and the packaging and distribution is actually largely done in China, in mainland China. So the whole thing is hugely integrated. Yeah, I mean, very symptomatic of the globalized world that we've just gone through in the last few decades, exactly. which you in your yeah. book looks at in terms of whether or not it will last. And let's talk about that in a bit. But for now, let's let's talk about the People's Republic of China. In 2015, the government set up the Made in China 2025 Industrial Strategy, which is aimed at taking China higher up the values chain when it comes to manufacturing. So not toys and clothes, but renewables, AI, biotech and semiconductors. But Nigel, when the industrial policy was first announced in 2015, it had the target of basically meeting 40% of its domestic demand by 2020 or for semiconductors and 70% of its domestic demand in semiconductors by 2025. How successful has China been in meeting those targets? Not very is a short answer. I mean, the fact is that China is investing very heavily in microprocessor production and huge financial incentives are being offered by different provincial and municipal administration to attract uh, startups to get into this business. But I think since 2015, China's industrial policy has evolved. And I think it's quite clear that under Xi Jinping, the vision for the future is small and medium startups focusing on industrial production. I think mm. we're seeing now that Xi Jinping himself is showing very pronounced Marxist tendencies in that he you know, looks at the economy in terms of production and distribution, has little time for or little interest in consumption. And we've seen in the last two to three years that these consumer-facing mega corporations in China like Alibaba and Tencent have come under a lot of government pressure. And the focus now, as I said, is very much on industrial production, developing these capabilities to enhance China's manufacturing and production capability. I mean, there is a phenomenon in China that is referred to as the Gongyedang, the industrial party. It's not, of course, a party. What it is is a kind of loose coalition of young Chinese engineers who see China's future very much in terms of this industrial production 
And I think you know, this is a reflection of the way the country is, is looking at the issue. When you say industrial production, is that high-tech industrial production as yes, well? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. I mean, the, the aim is to go as high up the value chain as quickly as possible and to the extent that it is possible, achieve something close to global dominance in the tech sector, the way that the United States has enjoyed that status you know, for the last 40, 50 years. So why is it that China hasn't been able to crack that industry then when it comes to semiconductors? Well, it's not the only industry where China is uh, still struggling. I mean, mm. you know, aero engines for, for commercial airliners is another area where China stubbornly fails to, you know, to, to make the grade. But I think the problem is in China that it goes back, I made the point in my book, back to the 1960s, when China's understanding of transistors and microprocessors was broadly on a par with that of the United States. But following all the turmoil of the Cultural Revolution, the disparaging of intellectuals and all that sort of thing, China basically dropped a whole generation of scientific and uh, engineering progress, and it's never really recovered from that. And you do have a lot of very capable young Chinese engineers who are now working in the industry. But you know, the, the big problem for China at the end of the day is that China has not been able to develop these very advanced ultraviolet lithographic systems that are effectively dominated by two corporations and actually you know, in practice, really one, ASML, which is a Dutch corporation. And because the equipment, this you know, deep ultraviolet lithography and now extreme ultraviolet lithography is so dependent upon US intellectual property, the United States government is pretty much able to dictate the terms on which ASML can sell its equipment to other countries. And we're seeing now the United States government apparently planning to crack down on this to the point where China's MFA press spokesman Zhao Lijian talked about technological terrorism <laughs> in terms of you know the fact that the United States is planning to deny China access to this equipment. And as I said, it's not just the equipment. You know, this is one of these businesses where if you were able to acquire the equipment, if you were able to, so to speak, steal the blueprint, mm. you still wouldn't be there because you don't have the experienced workforce that is going to actually operate this kit. You don't have the supply chains that you need to ensure timely and effective delivery of all the inputs that you're going to need to deliver the, the appropriate quality. So it is an uphill struggle. And it's not just something that you can solve by throwing money at. And this mm. is the difference. When China wanted to have a network of high-speed rails, it was relatively straightforward. They just stole blueprints from Japan, threw yeah. money at it, and eventually... Literally stole, through espionage yeah, or... Yeah. 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 And through you know, patience and persistence, they got actually very quickly a national high-speed rail network. Microprocessors are not that sort of technology. There is a German term, Fingerspitzgefühl, literally meaning fingertip feel, which refers to the kind of innate knowledge that is very mm. difficult to explain. It's something you acquire by doing it. And this is a key area where China still is behind. So time really matters, the amount of time you've had. Seven years is not enough. Time does matter, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, of course, is 
it's possible that China might be involved in a kind of Zeno's paradox race, you know, where, where Achilles never actually overtakes the tortoise. Because everyone else is going by so quickly. Well, yes. And the other point is, of course, we are coming to a point, you know, not yet, but it will happen when, you know, so-called Moore's Law, the proposition that the capacity of microprocessors increases roughly every 24 months, will come to an end. You're talking about uh, production at the three nanometer node. Well, the size of a silicon atom is 0.2 nanometers. Once you hit that, you've nowhere mm. else to go. So there will come a point, you know, at some point where it's going to be very difficult to etch yet more complex circuitry into yet tinier microscopic slivers of silicon. Now, there are ways around this. You're moving from electronic to photonic as a way of optimizing the ability of these small chips to function. There are other materials rather than silicon that could be used. Gallium, an obvious case in point. These things are in the future. But the point is, it is going to be one of these situations where you know, there will come a point at which we kind of run out of road in terms of how we're producing these things at the moment. And the question is, will China ever sort of catch up? And is it, does it make good economic and commercial sense for China to try to do that. Yeah, I mean, in a globalized world, you can just get your stuff wherever, right? But I think that's well, a indeed. Mm. big assumption right now. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But before we move on to the geopolitics, Nigel, some in the West might say that only innovative societies, politically free societies, societies that encourage critical thinking, can do this kind of cutting-edge technology. Matt Ridley, for example, a Spectator contributor, has a book exactly on this called How Innovation Works. Do you think that's part of China's problem? It could be. I mean, I think we should be careful about making too easy general about this kind of thing. If you look at the Soviet Union during the Cold War, for example, it was hardly a free society, yet we saw some quite significant uh, technological in innovations. Let's say, you know, take the Kalashnikov, mm. you know, the most commonly available firearm in the world. It was a Soviet military officer who you know, decided that he was going to work out how to combine the best features of a rifle and a submachine gun in one item. And that was very successful. In the 1950s, you know, it looked as if the Soviet Union was going to beat the United States in the space race, you know, so on and so forth. So I don't think it's entirely that straightforward. But at the same time, I do think that there are risks associated with an excessively statist approach to running these things. And I think we're going to see this with China's efforts to dominate global technical standards, which is a major focus of the Xi Jinping administration. The way it's working at the moment, we're going to see the state more actively involved in working with industry to develop technical standards. I mean, there is a risk there that if the state gets too much involved, you end up in a situation where you're kind of baking in obsolescence rather mm. than creating the circumstances for genuine continuing innovation. There's a big risk in that. Can you explain what you mean by technical standards? Yeah. All electronic equipment in the world, and this is absolutely everything from the most you know, advanced microprocessors to the you know, device that you plug into the wall to charge your phone, all of these things are designed to internationally agreed technical standards. The point is you know, that the country that, whose technical standards get adopted internationally 
stands to benefit very significantly, both economically, because every time somebody develops a device using these standards, they pay royalties. Mm. And China pays huge amounts of royalties, including to the United States for things like software. So if you can get the world to accept or a significant part of the world to accept that your technical standards are the ones that should be adopted, you benefit economically, both because people are paying you royalties and they're buying your kit or kit that is designed on your standards. But it goes beyond that. Because if you look at the way the internet developed in the 1990s and the 2000s, it had US values baked into it, so to speak. And I think that China would like to see a world in which the next generation of technical standards had Chinese values baked into them. You see this, for example, with the way in which China sells its communications networks to, to the developing world. You know, they have all the capabilities for authoritarian oversight and control that are, you know, commonplace within China's own networks. And so you get a kind of reinforcing process in which your values, your approach, your way of doing things gradually becomes the accepted global way of doing it. Yeah, well, I had um, Jing Tu from Yale University on recently and her book Kingdom of Characters mentioned the early telegraphy moment yes. where based mm. on Morse code, it was based on alphabetic, the English alphabet and China really struggled with adapting that to its own language. So I, I guess it's just a modern version of that. Well, yes, indeed. I'm old enough to remember the Chinese commercial codes for some of the most common Chinese characters. <laughs> <laughs> No, not, many people, not many people you know, can, can any longer do that, nor is it a particularly useful skill. <laughs> Helps the little grey cells. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so let's talk about the geopolitics of the whole thing then, because clearly America and China both see it as a national security issue. Well, actually, can I say that? Can I say clearly yes. that both sides see it as a national I think, security yeah, issue? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. Yeah. yeah, okay. So there's an arms race that's happening, and you've already mentioned the American efforts to basically hobble China in its catching up. In your recent book, you've, you've talked about how that race will lead to a great decoupling of tech and supply chains between the West and China. We've, I think listeners have already had an idea of just how integrated and global the whole process is at the moment. So, so what, what do you foresee happening then in the next 10, 20 years with this great decoupling? Well, as the great Yogi Berra once said, never make predictions, especially about the future. But <laughs> you know, one, one can see you know, sort of possible ways in which this situation might evolve. And, you know, I suspect that, you know, one very likely outcome is a world that is kind of bifurcated with some countries using US-based technological systems, others using Chinese systems, and some countries possibly operating a hybrid arrangement where, you know, to some extent they use both, which, of course, would be highly inefficient, add considerable costs, but may be the way to go. I mean, I'm sure you're aware, you know, that, that when you go on the Chinese internet, it is already, in many ways, a very different experience mm. to using, you know, Western internet. You know, it is at once similar, but in other ways, very different. And, you know, those differences are to a significant degree cultural rather than technical. The technology, the underlying technology is, is, is essentially the same. The way it is applied is actually quite different. So, I mean, I think that is one possibility. But I think what we are going to see 
what we're already in and will probably be in for some considerable time is a kind of messy, undetermined situation in which, you know, neither side is going to be in a position to declare victory to say, well, we've taken over the world and everybody's going to do it our way. So there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, a lot of competition going on. It's not always necessarily going to be the best technology that comes out on top because politics and geopolitics are going to play a very considerable role in all of this. But the incentive to produce the best possible technology is still going to be there. And ultimately, there's a question about you know, whether a status Chinese model can, in the long term, perform better than mm. the US laissez-faire model. And we don't know the answer to that question. You know, for years in the West, we've taken it as an act of faith that the laissez-faire system will always develop better results at the market. You know, will you know sort of sort things out. Even though Adam Smith was quite clear that it wouldn't always, and governments would need sometimes to intervene to take corrective mm-hmm. action. And so we're seeing a contest between two very different value systems, two very different approaches, and it is absolutely unclear how that is going to play out. In China, it is an article of faith that the Chinese system, socialism with Chinese characteristics, all the new era. Oh, um, Xi Jinping is the core. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Getting you know. quite a mouthful but now. <laughs> don't you love these sort of snappy, you know, appealing <laughs> titles they come up with? Yeah, that must prevail. And, you know, that has been very, very clearly and repeatedly stated. We will see. But can I push back on that, Nigel, and say yeah. that the American government is getting quite involved when it comes to technology and certainly semiconductors. We've already talked about export controls. That doesn't just apply to American companies. As you say, they're pressuring the Dutch government and the Japanese governments to not supply China with the relevant components in this industry. As I understand it, the Arizona plant that TSMC is opening came about from political pressure from the Trump administration. Absolutely. So the government is putting its oar in. And, you know, Mm. do you think that that's a, obviously that's a Trump era legacy, but it doesn't look like Biden's going to overturn it or any successive American governments? Well, that seems to be an issue under debate within Washington at the moment. At the moment, it's rather narrowly focused on whether existing Trump tariffs should be maintained or whether some of them should be lifted, whether it will be in U.S. interest to do so. But yes, I mean, I think that every country has its national myths and the United States national myth is one of, you know, untrammeled free enterprise. It's never been like that since the 1890s, you know, when Roosevelt brought the the oil companies and the banks to heel. Ever since then, you know, the United States government has been ready to intervene as and when necessary. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a bill going through Congress at the moment called the United States Competition and Innovation Act that provides for, I think, $250 billion in funding, most of which is designed to ensure that the United States can remain competitive vis-a-vis China. And actually, this is seen in China as such a threat that China has threatened unspecified retaliation if this act is passed into law which I think it very well will be, albeit not in its current form. So, yeah, I mean, the U.S. government is getting very actively involved. It's used the entities list, 
an arrangement which was designed to prevent equipment and know-how going to countries to develop weapons of mass destruction programs to deny access to Chinese companies of U.S. technology and inputs. And we're seeing, if anything, that restrictive approach broadening under Biden. And the mood within Washington, within the Beltway, is such I think it would be very difficult for any administration mm. to suddenly turn around and say, let's make nice with China. You know, this is just not you know, a realistic political possibility in, in today's America. Well, is it also effective insofar as, you know, when it comes to semiconductors, one victim, Chinese victim, has been Huawei, which yes. was subject mm. to export controls in the chips that it needed. Has that worked? Has it been working? Yeah, well, and certainly it has uh, kneecapped Huawei's mobile technology sector, and Huawei has had to move into other areas, cloud computing being the main one. So yes, I mean, Huawei uh, definitely was very badly affected by what the United States did. I mean, China's 5G networks are moving ahead, but perhaps uh, slower than they would otherwise have done. The United States is now rolling out 5G networks. So most people I know who've got them say there's no perceptible difference from 4G. (laughs) Actually, that was to be expected to start with. When you get a a new generation of mobile technology, the way it evolves is very dependent upon the so-called vertical use cases. Right. So, you know, when you get this technology, how it evolves, how it develops is critically dependent upon how key industries and key actors choose to utilize it and develop it. So it's still in a sort of fairly embryonic state in that respect. But yes, I mean, what uh, the US has done vis-a-vis Huawei and is now planning to do with other Chinese companies is going to have an impact, no question about it. But of course, that only takes you so far. Yes, you can slow China down, but then can you speed America up? That is actually the more important question to answer, because if all you're doing is you know, sort of kneecapping your opponent, but not actually running in the race, you're ultimately not going to achieve very much. And this, I think, you know, is, is my big worry, is that if we do end up in this progressive technology decoupling, I think everybody is going to be a loser. I don't think mm. there are you know, going to be winners in, in this competition because mm. you know, to date, these technologies have been so dependent upon global integration, the interchange of ideas. And if we're going to end up dealing with two sealed systems, well, we know the second law of thermodynamics tells us what happens in a sealed system. You get entropy. <laughs> Brilliant. But Nigel, surely in this race, America has the upper hand and plain devil's advocate here in that It's got its own know-how. It's got a Taiwanese manufacturing, and soon it will have it in its own country Mm. in in Arizona. As you mentioned, Samsung is the second market leader. South Korea is an American ally. Surely in this kind of race, just on semiconductors alone, America has the upper hand. Well, America does have the upper hand at the moment. It's still several generations uh, ahead of China in terms of design. And for, for the reasons we've talked about, it's actually going to be quite difficult for China to catch up. I suspect something similar may be going on with artificial intelligence. That one is more difficult because what we talk about, you know, when we talk about AI, which we tend to actually use it as shorthand for, for machine learning, this stuff is still actually very fragile and unpredictable in the way that it works. But I think that the United States retains a corpus of expertise here that China cannot yet match. Indeed, it it remains the case 
that uh, the majority of Chinese experts in AI aren't actually working in China, they're working in America. Mm. So, you know, there are issues here. Although the Americans are trying hard to get them to go back to China. <laughs> they don't want those Chinese experts. I know, yes, indeed. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> nobody ever said that uh, Western governments are not capable of acts of self, uh, you know, self-destruction. self Self-kneecapping. <laughs> indeed, yes. I mean, you know, let's look at Brexit as an example of that. <laughs> let's mm. not get on to Brexit. <laughs> no. Mm. Um, and what about rare earths? Is that something, I mean, am I right in thinking that rare earths is a fundamental material that is needed for yes. semiconductors? Yeah. And China controls, I think, 80% of the world supply? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, rare earths, the term rare earths is a bit of a misnomer because these things aren't actually that rare. Oh, okay. They're they're, they're quite abundant and quite widely distributed. America's got lots of them. So has Canada, so has Australia. You know, there are other places within the U.S. sort of geopolitical orbit that have these things. The problem with these rare earths is that they are extremely dirty and polluting to produce. And until recently, China has been the only country that has been willing Mm. to shoulder that cost. But also in Africa, right? Chinese companies in Africa. Well, I mean, some of these raw materials, I mean, lithium in particular, cobalt, these have been coming from from Africa, from the Democratic Republic of, of Congo in particular. But there are other countries, you know, in Latin America, I mean, countries like Chile, Bolivia have got you know, significant deposits of these minerals. The real problem is the processing, which is expensive, dirty, polluting. Mm. China's doing a lot of this production in Inner Mongolia, which has kind of large swathes of land that nobody's ever going to live on. So it's relatively speaking easier for them to take that hit. But the United States was the country that first started to mine and process rare earths, actually as a byproduct of other more conventional mining operations. And if they're prepared you know, to assume the risks, you know, the environmental costs, they can perfectly well produce these things for themselves. So I think it unlikely that China is going to retain a, a chokehold. Mm. In fact, you know, a, a few years back, China did withhold uh, supplies of rare earths from Japan in retaliation for something the Japanese did. I can't remember what. And in, in fact, what happened was that the Japanese uh, just resourced those rare earths. And the net result was that China simply lost market share. So it's more complicated than that. Having said that, of course, the fact that China does have such a high percentage dominance in the production of these things does give it some leverage, no question. Yeah. And the ultimate thing that China can do, which we've been quite good at not mentioning so far, is invading Taiwan and overtaking TSMC. So I think some people in Washington are worried about that. Well, yes, I think they are, yes. I mean, the the Taiwanese tend to blithely say, oh, well, this is our silicon shield. China would never take the risk of seeing the TSMC fabs destroyed in order to to retake the island. I'm not persuaded of that at all. I think, you know, like like a lot else to do with Taiwan's attitude towards its own defense, there's a certain delusional element there. But, you know, the, the fact is that the TSMC fabs are a source of potentially serious risk. And the question is, in a violent invasion scenario, would the Taiwanese government, would the United States be ready 
to destroy these fabs rather than let China get hold of them. Mm. I mean, if we look at an analogous situation, Switzerland in, in the early 1940s, everyone assumed that uh, Nazi Germany was going to invade. The Swiss sent a message to Berlin saying, if any German forces cross our border, you know, our army will destroy the country's industrial infrastructure, blow the dams, flood the central plains and take to the hills to conduct guerrilla warfare. So faced with the prospect of acquiring a, a totally unproductive and useless piece of real estate, Hitler opted not to invade. Now, Taiwan potentially could do something similar, but so far it hasn't. Do we have any signal from Washington or Taipei that it is thinking about doing it, that it might lean towards that as a policy? Not, not that I'm aware of, no. Do you think it's actually a deciding factor, a carrot for China to invade Taiwan? Is there something that could change? Well, you, know, you would think so, but I've not seen any discourse to that effect. So I think it is an open question. I mean, I'm yeah. not claiming to have all the answers here, particularly in relation to a country as opaque as China is. I've just not seen any you know, publicly articulated discourse around this issue. Do you think that in, in this decoupling scenario that could happen, if, if China is not getting the chips from TSMC anyway, mm. it mm. may as well just invade if America pressures this kind of decoupling to the extent that China can't get its components? I mean, I think there may be a strain of thought which says effectively, you know, the one thing China has got in its favor is that it does manufacture a very significant proportion of the world's less sophisticated microprocessors mm. from the sort of 24 and nanometers sort of upwards, as it were. And there could be a kind of Erostratus kind of mindset, Erostratus being the guy who decided he was going to seek notoriety by burning down the Temple of Diana at Ephesus. You know, it is possible that the Chinese might say, right, if we can't have it, nobody can have it. And you know, even if we lose this, we will still be able to manufacture at the higher production nodes, and this will give us a kind of strategic advantage. Yeah. Uh, that is a possible train of thought. As I've said, I've not heard this articulated. Of course. And I also want to bring it back to the UK, because in the UK now, Nigel, you and I, we've spoken about the live political question over the acquisition of Newport Wafer Fab yes. by a mm. Chinese company. It's a Welsh semiconductor manufacturer, and basically the government did a national security review of it. Stephen Lovegrove concluded that it was not a national security concern. Quasi Quartin, the business secretary, told him to go back and look again. Better, yes. <laughs> Are you sure? Because yes. clearly politically, the argument goes, if China acquires a manufacturing capability, and it is part of Made in China 2025 that it is creating national champions, but also acquiring foreign manufacturing. So it is part of the strategy. You know, it feels like the West is shooting itself in the foot. Why would the UK let that happen? Yeah. But you expressed doubt about it when we last talked about it. Can you explain why? Yeah, I mean, the Newport doesn't manufacture very high-end, advanced microprocessors. I think the issue in relation to Newport may be less one of national security than UK industrial patrimony. Does it make sense to lose this kind of capability? Because once lost, it's not easy to, mm. to, to get it back. And I think one of the things people are beginning to wake up and realize about deindustrialization in the West, in the United States, in Europe, is that with deindustrialization comes a loss of expertise culture, you know, workforce skills, 
that are very difficult to recover. So I think the question is probably less, you know, is, is, is this a sort of security dagger poised at the heart of UK national security? Or is it a question of the advisability of the UK losing these skills and capabilities? And I think it's more that. But I think national security as a term has been broadened now, hasn't it, in, in this arms race world that we're in? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Xi Jinping's concept of comprehensive national security you know, effectively incorporates everything. Perhaps as it should. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is the reality. I mean, you know, we, we've seen a progressive expansion of, of what people think of as meaning national security. You know, not long ago, it was very narrowly defined in terms of largely sort of military focus. But you know, concepts of security have been significantly evolving since then and continue to do so. Mm. And you also previously mentioned that Newport Wafer Fab actually was doing quite low-end stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an idea of just how advanced it is or not? I'm not absolutely sure, but I think the best they can do is 28 nanometers, okay. I think. So is that what the Chinese can already do themselves? Anyway? Which they already do, yeah, exactly. Right, I see. Mm. Okay. And Nigel, just finally, seeing as I have you here, I wanted to get your thoughts on the recent Tense House joint speech by the um, heads of MI5 and the FBI. For listeners who don't know, the Director General of MI5 and the Director of the FBI said that they had more than double the effort against Chinese activity of concern and that China poses the biggest long-term threat to national security for the West. It's made headlines, as perhaps it should, because it is quite an exceptional joint speech. But at the same time, these are things that we already knew, didn't we? I mean, as a former intelligence officer, I would have wondered what you thought about the speech. Well, you and I know about this because, of course, we follow these issues very closely. But I think, you know, I mean, I I don't know exactly what the motivation was for this joint presentation. But what I strongly suspect is that it reflects a perception by both the FBI and MI5 that the threat from China is, is growing unmanageably large. And in order to deal with it, there needs to be an important uh, exercise in public consciousness raising. Mm. Because I think the Chinese have been quite adept at operating within sort of grey areas in the United Kingdom, in particular activities like you know, elite capture, you know, sort of paying senior retired people large sums of money to occupy sinecures and then use them to either promote China's uh, points of view or maybe also help you know, gain access to things that China wants. And you know, there's a lot of concern about engagement between academic institutions, universities and so on in which there is a risk of important technology leaching away, all of these factors come into it. So I think it's not, you know, I, I think that you know, a lot of people tend to assume that you know, there's a real espionage threat in the United Kingdom that sort of comes from countries like Russia using very traditional techniques and tradecraft. Chinese intelligence services have a looser approach to things like tradecraft. And indeed, intelligence collection is not just the preserve of China's intelligence agencies. Lots of other entities are involved. I mean, the point I made in my book, you know, Great Decoupling, is that you know, China, we need to think of China to some extent as an intelligence state in much the same way as the Venetian Republic was in its apogee in the 16th and 17th century, where when intelligence collection and covert acquisition was kind of built into the fabric of the state such that almost anybody could find themselves involved 
in intelligence work, and I think we're seeing something similar now in China. And you know, conveying an awareness of that, you know, alerting people to the potential risks of getting involved in what, on the face of it, seem like innocuous activity. I think you know, th this is the real message that uh, McCallum and Ray were trying to you know, to put across. Fascinating. Nigel, we must have you back on the show just to talk about espionage, of course. Nigel Inkser, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. A pleasure. Thank you, Cindy. And if you enjoy this podcast, we have a new Chinese Whispers newsletter coming soon. So if you want to sign up to that, which will just be an email version of everything you love about Chinese Whispers, the podcast, then you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers to sign up and it will be coming soon.